You're listening to Legally Bliss Conversations. This podcast reclaims and rewrites the stories female attorneys have been told about how we should practice law, grow our businesses, treat our clients, treat ourselves, and craft our identities as female attorneys. We'll hear inspiring stories from current and former female attorneys, the ones who question the stories they've been told, the ones who aren't afraid to live boldly and step into their own power. We'll learn from women who define success on their terms. Through lighthearted and curious conversation, we'll unpack the challenges these inspiring female attorneys have already navigated. So join me on this journey. You'll be empowered and ready to rewrite a completely new story about what is possible for you. I would love to welcome Amy Impelizari. She is a reformed corporate litigator a two-year DC federal court clerk, a former startup exec, and award-winning author. After spending a decade at one of the top law firms in the country, Amy left to advocate for working women, eventually landing at a VC-backed startup company, Hybrid Her, named by Forbes Women as a top website for women, while writing her first novel, Lemongrass Hope, um, which was named a 2014 Indie Fab Book of the Year bronze winner in romance. I love that. Okay. <laughs> Just lawyer romance. Um, her sophomore novel, Secrets of the World of Worry Dolls, was an editor's pick in Forward Reviews magazine. Her newest novel, I Know How This Ends, has been called Perfect for Fans of This Is Us by Book Tribe. Amy's first nonfiction book, Lawyer Interrupted, was published by the American Bar Association in May 2015 and has been featured in the Atlantic.com, Above the Law, ABC 27, and more. Amy is a top copywriter, past president of the Women's Fiction Writers Association, and a contributor to She is Fierce in Women Writers, Women's Books. Amy's essays and articles have appeared in the Huffington Post, Writer's Digest, The Glass Hammer, Divine Caroline, ABA's Law Practice Today and Skirt Magazine, among more. So, whoa. Okay. <laughs> I have to ask you. Well, first of all, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. That was very beautiful listening to that laid out like that. So, very, I very much appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> no. That's amazing. I'm so impressed. And when I heard you, I've listened to you on podcasts. Um, a podcast in the past. Um, it was a wake up call podcast. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah it was so good. I was like, oh my gosh, like I love yeah. the story and I'm very curious. Like I would love to know where do you get your inspiration? So yeah, it's, it's funny because I, you know, I was a corporate litigator for 13 years. Um, but I always say I was always a writer. So I was, as a little girl, I was, I always was, I had a lot of diaries. I had journals lined up on my bookshelf. I was always narrating the room when I'd walk in, like I was a writer, but I also was always going to be a lawyer. I, I knew that about myself. And so when I started college, I, I was writing, I would still be filling those journals. I was taking creative writing classes and I was also on my path to become a lawyer. And I, I actually got some advice for good or for bad. I'm not really sure how I feel about it now. Um, um, but a, a friend who was already in law school, he was a couple of years older than me and he had already gone to law school and he came back to visit us in college. And he said to me, Amy, you can't do both. Like you have to pick, you have to decide whether you're a creative writer or, um, or a lawyer. And uh, he said, you know, when you write, you're not going to be able to write in your own, when you're, if you're a lawyer, you're not going to be able to write in your own voice. You're going to be writing in your client's voices. And so you really have to pick one. And so I, you know, boxed up all my creative writing. I put everything in a box, literally, and put it away for a long time. And I went to law school and then I, and I worked in the law for many years. And I took that path of not writing in my own voice. And so um, all these things were happening to me, um, over the years. Um, I don't know how much you know about my story, but I was, um, I lived in New York, uh, during 9-11 and then also, um, 
there was a residential plane crash on my corner two months after 9-11 that I survived. And so um, these things were happening. And also my law career was, I was working at a very big law firm. There was a lot of drama uh, in my law career, um, both in the courtroom and outside of it. And I was, all of these things were happening and I had no voice to sort of work through them, express them. And certainly the plane crash was a big, pivotal moment for me. Um, I really, I continued, I stayed, I stayed in the law and I stayed in New York for many years after that. I didn't leave the law um, for many years after that. But as soon as I left the law, I, le I, I left for what was supposed to be a one-year sabbatical now over a decade ago. And when I left, uh, I really didn't have a clear plan except that I was going to do a lot of things that I wanted to do. And I was going to really spend the year like exploring. And I was going to write. And as soon as I stepped away from the law for like a minute, um, all of the things that had been happening to me since I last boxed, boxed up my writing sort of started to manifest themselves on the page, really. Um, and so that is my long way of saying my inspiration comes from, from living, really. And from a, long, from a long time of ignoring my voice, and, and, and reclaiming it. And it's taken me really, truly like a decade to, to reclaim it. Wow. So let's say that you were in the position of the guy that you were talking to yeah. that, that, Hey, you know, let's say this young aspiring <laughs> lawyer came up to you and said, Hey, like, I love writing, yeah. but I want to be a lawyer. What advice would you give her right now yeah. knowing what you know now yeah so I would say what I do say often which is do it on the side so if you really want to go to law school and you really want to be a lawyer do it do it um do it for the right reasons I'm always very cautious about people who say they want to go to law school if they don't have a reason why but um do it go to law school but don't give up the writing don't give up the art don't give up whatever it is that's your creative outlet don't give it up for two reasons. One, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> it doesn't make sense to give up a whole part of yourself. But two, the law is actually people, I, I was under this misconception for a long time. I thought the law, I tell this story. I worked at Skadden in New York. And uh, at the time I worked at Skadden for, for 10 years of, of the time, my tenure at Skadden, we were in the Condé Nast building, which is the same building that houses like the Vogue offices and all the, you know, um, Vogue magazine conglomerate. And so those were on one side of the office uh, of the building and the law firm was on the other side of the building. And you would literally every morning walk in and, and I would do this exercise. I would stand back and watch the tide of people and the lawyers would, you could clearly visibly see them walking on one side and the beautiful people were walking in the other side. <laughs> and I and I mean to tell you, I, want to be on I, <laughs> I would stand there every single morning and think to myself, I want to be with the beautiful people. Like I want to be there. They were creative. They were fun. They were, and listen, they were working hard, right? Like they, I'm not under any illusion of like what they were doing, but I had this idea that you had to be one or the other. And so after I left the law, I figured out that actually the law does attract so many creative people and then doesn't necessarily give them an outlet for that creativity. So I often tell people by having a side artistic venture, even if it doesn't lead to a, uh, you know, a paid gig or a self-subsidizing gig, to have that creative outlet on the side will help fuel the legal career if indeed that is where you're meant to be. So I, um, you know, for me personally, I'm a big person for not looking back. It definitely, um, I don't have any regrets about boxing up the writing. I'm so, because I found it again. So I'm so grateful that I found it again. I would have lots of regrets if I had never found it again. But, um, but I would, I do encourage people to not give it up entirely. It's not necessary. <laughs> so why do you think that attorney gave you that advice? I mean, I think he was trying to be helpful. He was in law school. He wasn't practicing yet. He was in the throes of it. He was feeling very overwhelmed. Sure. Um, he was giving me very specific advice at, at a, in the context of I was um, 
<laughs> I was taking this American lit class and I got a C on my Lolita paper. I did not understand Lolita in the same way my American lit professor understood Lolita and I still don't understand Lolita in a lot of ways most people do. And, um, and I was like saying to him, oh my gosh, you know, I got a C, I'm never going to get into law school. I can't write. And he said to me, whoa, 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 whoa. You have to give up this idea that you can do both. And um, so I, 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 I extrapolated it into this like, you know, big monster uh, missive. But the truth was, and he thought he was giving me good advice. He was, you know, saying like, you got to pick one. He felt very singularly focused. He was in law school and he was not the right person. That's the problem. He wasn't the right person for me to be asking advice of at that time. And so internalizing the advice he gave me was potentially dangerous, but thank goodness uh, it, it all worked out. <laughs> Amy's advice is to be very careful about where you get your advice. Yes. <laughs> careful what you wish for <laughs> right like consider your yeah. sources if someone yeah. is like struggling in the throes of their first year of law school yeah you know yeah. That's not that's not yeah. the right that's not, not the right source of advice but, yeah but you do that right like you you're in college and and you look at someone who's in law school and you're like oh yeah. you know their shit right they know what's going yeah. on <laughs> Listen, and and even somebody who's new to the practice who's still finding their way um yeah you know, is, is not necessarily going to have all the, all the answers mm -hmm. and no one person has all the answers. No. Right. So it's about taking, um, collective experience and, and, and it's about following your own gut too. And it's about following your own, your own path. Every, we all have, I used to say, I have a very, uh, untraditional, you know, unconventional path to publishing, but then I learned that everybody has their own path to publishing. It's all very unique. And so then I really under, start to understand in a very concrete way that we all have our own universal path, right? And you have to be more, I have to be respectful of that. Right, yeah. I think that's a, that's a good thing to think about whenever your opinions differ from other people's, especially like when it comes to politics, like you never really know what someone else's past yeah. experience has, you know, have been, the teachers that they've had in their life. Um, or, or anything like that. So I think it's uh, definitely something to take into consideration. Yeah. I've learned that too with writing because my, I find that people receive, you know, books. I mean, I mostly write fiction, right? And so people receive the fiction with their own viewpoints, right? So they bring their own viewpoints, they bring their own perspectives, and then people will have varying, you know, perspectives or varying takes on what I've written, on what the you know, they'll, they'll, they'll sort of like project a backstory into a character I never even thought of. And yeah. that's been such a, a, uh, it's been a really like an interesting lesson in empathy for me to understand how everyone brings their own perspective to story and to storytelling. And it's, and I tell the story, but then people interpret it and receive it in as many individual ways as that there are readers. And I, I have found that actually an incredibly rewarding and also challenging part of the publishing process. Yeah. And that's kind of analogous to what you were talking about a minute ago, whenever you wrote the paper on Lolita and you got the C on it. Yeah. Right. Like it kind of comes yeah. full circle, but you see that you're like, well, maybe I should have gotten an A and that professor, <laughs> I want to give that professor a C yeah. for his interpretation. Right. So yeah, he had a totally different experience to that point than I had. And, uh, yeah. and so we brought, we both brought competing interests, uh, perspectives to, to that point. He was, one in, he was one in charge of the grades. So. <laughs> <laughs> have you sent him any of your published books? That's very funny. Um, I have not. I actually do have, uh, I, I did, I have kept in touch with other professors over the years, but he's not. Okay, you need to like get every one of your books tied up with pretty bow. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I, never, I actually never thought of doing that until just now. So thank I feel you. I like thinking about you. I was, you know, talking about you the other day and our differences on Lolita. And I just wanted to, um, you know, since you the books that I've published, I'm just kind of curious, like, have, have you published lately? <laughs> seen your name out there or anything, but I'm just curious, you know, but I was thinking about you. So here you go. Yeah. yeah. It's funny. I think about him a lot, actually. <laughs> he, he, I'm sure he thinks about me, not at all. And I'm sure he'd be very interested to know how much I think about him. So. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I have, I look back in, at undergrad and I have a few professors that 
<laughs> really resonated with me and probably not a great way, right? And I think about them a lot. And yeah, it's, and it's really funny because I feel like that, that like one person in particular, I look at him and I think he had such an impact on my life trajectory. And he probably has never, he probably doesn't even know I exist. Like I was just one of the hundreds of students I'm sure he's ever had, you know, not thousands. And so, but it's interesting how that, how that happens. But so I, okay, so you're at Staten. So were you there all of your, your 10 years? So no. Uh, so yes, I was there for 10 years, but I actually, so after my clerkship, after my federal clerkship in DC, I then actually went to a boutique firm in um, New Jersey. I, I, it's funny. I was not going to practice in New York. I was going to stay in Philadelphia. Um, and I'm from Pennsylvania. I was originally going to practice in Philadelphia. So I took the Pennsylvania and New Jersey bars because I was going to be in or around Philadelphia. And then um, as luck would have it, I ended up moving to New York. Um, there was a man involved, of course. <laughs> I mean, it happens to the best of us. Yeah, it does. So, um, so I moved to New York and I, but I wasn't barred in New York. So I had, but I was barred in New Jersey. So I was commuting out to New Jersey and I got this job with a uh, boutique law firm out there and it was a fabulous position. And I was there for three years and it was a litigation firm. Um, I was in court all the time. They only hired law clerks, but it was a firm in New Jersey and I was living in New York and I was commuting out of New York. And so I started to get courted by Skadden and I decided to jump ship. And I remember when I went to the hiring partner's um, office at my old firm and I said, I was taking this job in Scan, and he said, you are going to hate it there. And I was like, what? Why would I hate it at Scadden? And he was like, you're a litigator and you are going to hate it there. And it was funny. I, I mean, there were a lot of red flags because here I was, I was interviewing at Scadden, but I was trying a case at my old firm and I'd have to schedule my interviews around like depositions and trial dates. And I remember the attorneys at Scadden being like, you're, you're what? You're gonna be in court? You're gonna be in deposition? But aren't you like a second year associate? Like, I don't understand. And I, I didn't think to myself like, wow, that's kind of a red flag, you know? And um, so I left, right? And all of a sudden here I was at Scadden and you know, the expectation was that I was gonna be like locked in a room doing documents. Were you doing document review? Is that what they had you do? Like, well, I, I was, I mean, I was too, I was too young to know what I didn't know. So I, when I took the job, I said, oh yeah, I would love to be part of the, I was joining the mass towards litigation department. And I said, I would love it. And just FYI, one thing I'll do anything, but one thing I won't do is doc review. <laughs> and in hindsight, it was so arrogant, but, um, and they were like, oh, oh, oh. So they didn't assign me to a document review. They assigned me with, um, some, uh, associates and a partner who were doing a lot of briefing. And that's what I did. But, you know, my days of being in court every week were, were, were over. And um, yeah. And so I did eventually work my way up to doing expert work. And I did a lot of expert depositions and I was part of a trial team, but you know, I wasn't in court the way I was in the past. And, um, and it was intellectually challenging work and it was interesting work. And listen, nobody was more surprised than me that I was there for 10 years um, but it was, you know, it was everything the storybooks tell you it is. I mean, it was, there was a lot of drama and I was sleeping on my floor and I always had a change of clothes in my office and I slept under my desk because my, my office was, the lights were motion censored and I would sleep under my desk so that I didn't turn the lights on in the middle of the night and I could get a couple hours of sleep. I mean, it was, it was all the things that you think it is. And the people were they were, they were all the characters and all the stereotypes of all the people. And, um, and, you know, then I started having kids, which was like unheard of. <laughs> yeah. How does that go over? Like, I just well, want a normal human experience. I want to have a baby. Right. I, and you're thinking. I hid it for a while. Like I hid that. Well, I hid that I was pregnant for a while. And, um, and then I had someone confront me. I had a partner confront me. He said, I've noticed you are not, um, he literally said to me, I've noticed you are not using artificial sweetener in your coffee anymore. And I don't know if you're pregnant. Yeah. I mean, this wasn't like 1902, by the way, you know, Wait, and, people can see my face. If they're only listening to the podcast, yeah, I yeah. am just, I yeah. don't even know what to say. Like pick my chin up off yeah. the floor because. And then I made the, then I made the very, um, 
<laughs> arguably questionable decision to continue working after I had kids. And I kept saying, uh, I'll figure this out. I'll figure this out. I still wanted to work. I took long, I banked all my leave and I took long, like six to seven months maternity leaves. I had three kids while I was working at Skadden. That was more, that is more outrageous than any verdict I worked on, I promise you. And so um, each time I had a baby, I kept it, I kept it a secret, really. And um, <laughs> I just kind of banked my, my, my sabbatical, my, that's my sabbatical, my leave time. And then I would tell them basically on the eve of leaving. And there was no maternity policy. a baby tomorrow. <laughs> no, there was like, there was literally no maternity policy. There was no written, like there was no, I, I went, I did go to a partner on the side and negotiated um, a part-time schedule, which was basically me being in the office four days, working from home three days. It was very much like, keep this on the down low. Don't let anyone know you're doing this. I would have, you know, I'd be in reviews with the partner and he'd say, you're doing a great job. Nobody would ever know you have kids and you're doing a great job. Yeah. I mean, I would have no pictures of my kids in my office. You know, the dads would be talking about going to baseball practice, whatever. I mean, if I had a kid with an earache, I would tell them that I was bleeding, that I, that's why I was home. I mean, I would never... I would never say I was home with a sick kid. And I tried to, I tried to not be home with a sick kid, but you know, occasionally you had to. And um, yeah, I mean, it was really barbaric. And um, and I uh and I I I ended up leaving my my three kids were five, three, and one when I finally threw in the towel um for my sabbatical again. I said, I'm gonna, yeah, they were little. And I said, I'm going to, I'm going to take a one-year sabbatical. I'm going to take a deep breath. This is, things have gotten a little out of control. <clears throat> and, um, my husband at the time was in, um, he was in his residency. Yeah. He was, I, I had put him through medical school and he was, he, he was not a partner <laughs> in the process. Right. So he had his own thing going on. Um, and, and he was in his residency at the time that I left. He was actually just starting his fellowship at the time I left. And it just, was like a good segue for uh for me taking a um a year off to regroup and the idea was I'm just gonna regroup we'll see we'll see where we are at the end of this year um how you know can I make it work am I do I miss it um can I make it work another way is there some is there something else I can do with my law degree which was something I really had never thought about I mean as you know it, it, when I was in college I gave up everything for law school, right? That was the only thing I was ever going to do was practice law. So, but as I got away from it, and it wasn't until I left that I started to understand what happened was I was doing some writing and I was doing some work for this startup company that I had discovered. I like, I'd kind of, I'd met the, the woman who was uh, um, president of the startup company, had been a former magazine editor in New York and um, I was just doing like a little writing for her on the side, in addition to a lot of other projects that I was doing. And then what I started to understand, and they didn't need a lawyer, they had a venture capital uh, firm behind them and their own legal counsel, but the creative team could not talk to the legal team. And they kept saying to me, oh, we, every time we ask the lawyers for something, they say, no, can you like help us get <laughs> how to ask them for something and say yes. Yeah. And so I became the translator. Between You're like the, the liaison, people. right? Yeah. I was like, oh, well, that's because you're asking for this. You can't say it like this. You've got to say it like this. And then you, and they're like, oh, I said, you, then you get you, same result, different words. It's all good. And um, so they, then I was like, wow, there's actually like other things I could do besides practicing law that are so fun. And so I did, I, I ended up working for that company. I ended up at the end of the year, um, taking a job with that company and, and extending my sabbatical for to a three-year leave of absence. Let's take a quick pause for a message from my sponsor, Prominent Practice. Are you thinking about a career transition from big law or partnership to a solo practice, selling your practice, or maybe you're launching a project unrelated to law? Whatever the reason for your transition, you'll need support along the way. 
Enter Prominent Practice, an executive consulting and marketing firm specializing in branding, positioning, and reputation management for transitioning attorneys. Founded by a female entrepreneur who spent a decade building smart digital platforms for thought leaders before pivoting to focus on high-end service providers who were preparing for successions, mergers, and acquisition events in their businesses. If you're thinking about making a big business move, don't risk losing the ability to leverage the reputation you've spent your career building. Let Prominent Practice be your guide. Visit prominentpractice.com slash bliss for an exclusive introduction. Um, I was working on a book on the side, which I didn't leave the law to write a book, but I was had this idea for a woman at a crossroads in her life, questioning like every decision she'd ever made. Not surprisingly that that would be the, <laughs> but I told her this is based upon, right? Like right. I was telling it, it was, it was, you know, not autobiographical. I was telling in the context of this like love story. Um, and I started to think, wait, you know, I'll just work on this on the side, you know, as sort of a creative outlet. And, um, eventually after a couple of years, I decided to pursue publication, but, um, and then I left the startup company, but it was just, uh, you know, it was one of those very interesting, I was open to things that, uh, and then I was, you know, I was open to things as, as they presented themselves, I, I was able to take advantage of them, but I didn't even really understand what was possible uh, until I actually left law, which is what a message I give to a lot of would-be transitioning lawyers who were like, I want to leave, I want to do something else, but I have no idea what, and what on earth could I do? when I leave. And I always try to explain to people, first of all, think about it, like explore it on this side. That's a big theme of mine. But also until you leave, you don't actually even understand the, the world outside of these walls. And so you don't know how amazing it is outside of big law. <laughs> I, I don't know any, I, I don't know any, I always say like, there's no, I transitioning lawyers always say their only regret is that they didn't do it sooner. Um, Unless there's one demographic that, that will express some regret. And it's always people, usually women, who have left to become full-time caregivers, who haven't left to be caregivers alongside something else, who have left to be full-time caregivers. And I, my hypothesis that has, seems to help hold up is because a lot of those women have been pushed out too soon. And, um, and if you're pushed out too soon, you will have regrets because uh, you, should, you should leave on your own timeline. Yeah. Is it your decision? Like, is it even your decision at that point? Right. It's like, and I didn't leave to be, be a full-time caregiver, but had I, but had I left to be a full-time caregiver, I think I was on my timeline. Like, I think I did leave on my own. I left at the time that I was ready. Um, but if you, if you don't, if you don't leave on your own timeline, you, then you, then you have regrets. And so I often tell people like, don't leave, just don't run out the door you know, just like at its worst, like wait, take a beat yeah, and, and, and cultivate your exit strategy because running out the door too soon will lead to regrets. Right. So. Sure. sure. I like that cultivating an exit strategy. So when you took your sabbatical, you weren't necessarily cultivating a, a, an extra, a, an exit strategy. No, no, I was winging it for sure. Yeah. I was um, and so I was just of the mindset that I would spend one year doing things that I wanted to do and I wouldn't um, do anything I didn't want to do. I was like, I only have a year. I don't know what's going to happen at the end of this year and I got to make a count, right? So I didn't read, I didn't finish books that I didn't love. I didn't finish meals I didn't love. Like I was just like, we're going to only do things we love, right? Love that. So I, wrote, I did write and I did a lot of advocacy work and I worked for a non, I volunteered for a nonprofit and I did some pro bono work. And I was doing writing for this um, startup company and I was doing all of those things. And then, uh, and free, some like freelance writing, like nonfiction writing. Um, and then um, at the end of the year, I sort of was like, well, let's see what rises to the top. And what rose to the top was the work that I was doing with the startup company because it had legs and it was interesting to me. And it was allowing me to continue writing, which I found, which as I was like reclaiming that part of me, I was discovering that that was definitely something I didn't want to give up again. Mm. So how did you tell the firm? Well, at first I told them um, that I just wanted to turn it into a three-year sabbatical. And, um, you know, and then I just sort of like 
sent you an email saying I'm not coming back. <laughs> um, like, okay, was, no big deal. <laughs> yeah, by that point, it was just like, uh, it was a long goodbye. It was a long goodbye. I mean, when I, when I left for the sabbatical, I remember somebody, like, I remember saying my goodbyes. And I remember a couple of people saying to me, well, you'll be back in a year. And I remember thinking to myself, I don't know if I will, but, it, you know, I sort of like left it open. And um, so, yeah, so it was a long goodbye. And then uh, by the time I said goodbye, I was ready. Okay. So this is, this is, I, I love this. And I love the idea of, of taking a sabbatical. And I always tease that. I was at a bigger firm for, it, it wasn't technically a big law firm, um, but I was at a bigger firm for years and I wanted to take a sabbatical like because I needed clarity. I felt so, I felt like I was drowning, right? Like, and this was like probably 2000, around 2009, 2010. Yeah. It was after. Yeah, when I took mine, yeah. Yeah, and you know, it was after the recession and, and part of me was kind of like, I guess kind of during the recession. And part of me was like, I can't take a sabbatical. Like I'm lucky to have a job right now. Like I'm seeing people get their walking paper, you know, like I'm seeing this happen every day. Like I need to stay here. So at that point I couldn't even like really, like for me to entertain it, it just seemed comical, but you managed to make this happen. And I, I want to know like, how can other women make it happen for them right because I want them to be able to if they think that having taking a year sabbatical would be a really good idea in terms of like getting clarity and where they are they should have that opportunity and they shouldn't be afraid to ask for it um does Skadden already have something kind of in place for that or how did that so I took so they don't except they they had a temporary window which I climbed through so what happened was during the recession um, instead of other firms were laying off and Skadden decided as a PR move, instead of laying anyone off, they would offer this sabbatical and you could apply for it. And, um, you were guaranteed your job back at the end of the year. And, um, but you had to apply for it. So I, when I saw this come across my inbox, I thought this was, you know, divine intervention and I immediately applied for it. And I was immediately denied because I was told, no, 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 this isn't for you. This is for the M&A attorneys who have no work, right? So all the M&A attorneys, I was a litigator. Litig litigation is impervious to economic decline, right? So we were still busy, but all the M&A attorneys were sitting around with empty inboxes and they were nervous about their jobs. And so when the sabbatical was announced and when it was announced that they weren't going to do layoffs, they were going to do the sabbatical, none of the M&A lawyers applied for it because they were like, oh, whew, okay, we're going to sit here and do nothing for a year and we'll be fine. And, um, and all the litigators applied for it. And so they were like, no, 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 litigators. not you guys. No, we met everyone else, but you, you can't take it. And um, so I did push back and I did tell the head of my department, I said, you know, it was supposed to be open to everybody. And I really want to take this year and it's only a year. And um, what they ended up doing was because so many litigators applied for it and no M&A attorneys, they ended up restructuring and they ended up moving the M&A lawyers into litigation and giving the, the litigators who were applying for the sabbatical. Yeah. And they, there was this hope that people would self-select out and that, that everything would re you know fix itself so that they wouldn't have to actually lay off and and um and I think that worked I think it worked um so so yes and no so I took advantage of something that was available to me but I do recommend people try to negotiate even if not a year at least six months sabbatical um and uh mine was partially subsidized but obviously it saved the firm some costs. So you have that, you know, that leverage and that negotiation point, um, some time off, save the firm some money. And um, also if the, it was called sidebar plus, that's what they called this sabbatical program. And it was a big PR thing. And so I often tell people too, like if you can get some press and get some media for exposure for your firm, allowing you to explore this, uh, you know, something else, um, it benefits the firm too. Um, so those are the things that I sort of often tell people to try to use to negotiate because yes, you can explore other things and your weekends off or your, 
bank to vacation time that you never use and never take. Um, but the most productive time off is, is trying to do like a six month, one year sabbatical. And, and listen, in the context of a sabbatical, there's relatively low risk as long as you've negotiated, you know, an end date and that you'll come back at the end of that year. Um, or that you have the ability to come back at the end of the year, right? It becomes a, a lower risk alternative for you. And, um, and I do think it gives you the freedom. I do think it gives you the true freedom to truly explore. So, yeah. And it's not during maternity leave. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. 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 There's no, right. Right. I was not on maternity leave. Yeah. This is, this is not maternity leave. Got, got. Not maternity leave. There was no, there was no, there was no exploring, exploring side gigs when I was on maternity leave. Exactly. And you know, to your point that, oh, at, at a time of economic challenge, uh, is the worst time to ask for a sabbatical. Maybe not. Right. Maybe, because not. maybe yeah. it's the time to tell the firm, Hey, you know, maybe you're grappling with hiring decisions. Maybe you're grappling with laying off decisions, take a beat, uh, allow, you know, allow, offer, you know, three to five sabbatical positions in the department or whatever, and, um, allow for people to, um, possibly self-select out and possibly recharge. And that's only, you know, saving the firm money and then hopefully pr more productive down the road. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if you're totally exhausted, if you're burnt out, if you're feeling overwhelmed, um, yeah. or if you feel like you just need to like get some clarity in, in what you want to do going forward. I think it's so challenging to do that when you are kind of like in that daily grind of being a lawyer and wearing that hat. I mean, because your needs, <laughs> your personal needs are not necessarily first you know, especially when you have children and you're working in big law. I do think that we have this, this vision of ourselves as being so utterly replaceable and dispensable when we work in law firms and it's the culture. <laughs> it's not unfounded. We are treated like that in many ways. The reality is you're not as dispensable as you think you are, right? It costs them more to hire somebody new and onboard somebody new um, than it does to just bring you back after a short sabbatical. So remind them of that, even though they will have forgotten it. <laughs> and I think this is a really good point, Amy, that you as a lawyer in your firm, you have more leverage and bargaining power than you realize. Yes. I definitely did not feel that way. I felt, yeah. I felt freaking lucky. Like I was like, well, I felt like a cog, right there. You, back to kind of what you're, you were saying about yeah. being indispensable. I felt like a cog, but then I felt like a pretty lucky cog, um, keeping the wheels going. Right. And so it's about, well, Louisville wasn't really impacted by the recession as heavily and as quickly right. as New York. Right. And so all the firms were kind of, free. yeah, yeah. We were like tr <laughs> the old trickle down effect. Right. Like, <laughs> um, but but yeah, I mean, a lot of those big firms were scrambling. I recall that now. Um, and I think now, you know, we're not seeing, well, this is actually interesting. I'm not familiar with whether or not these firms are doing sabbaticals right now, because I know that, you know, the, the economy is a little, I mean, I don't want to say it's bad. But it's kind of, it's kind of weird right now, right? Like maybe that's the word. <laughs> yeah. It's a little uncertain. So yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, but if you're thinking about wanting to take a sabbatical, it does sound like, you know, it could be a good time to broach a subject with your firm. Yeah. And to really understand that you do have bargain, you have more bargaining power. than Yes. Than yes. You know, it's not, it's not the best idea to run out the, run out the door with no plan B at your worst possible moment. Right. For a lot of reasons for, for, for your own personal morale and emotional reasons for your networking, your future networking reasons, right? You want to leave those, all those, those bridges intact and those doors open. Um, and so the sabbatical can be even a good way to sort of like do a softer goodbye, right? Leave for a little bit, come back, make sure that the relationship, you know, see what's out there, sort of start to put together your strategy, come back and then leave on your own terms, you know, a little bit down the road with those relationships intact and, and your emotional energy restored a little bit. Yeah. Because you're going to need it even when you're on a yeah. sabbatical, right? Yeah. 
sure. Yeah. And you're, it's good to, to like leave and be in a positive mindset and making decisions from a positive mindset, right. Rather than kind of being at your lowest point, upset, freaking out, overwhelmed, and then making decisions. Those are not good places to be making decisions from. Right. Right. You don't want to make decisions from a point of desperation or fear, right? So it's another reason why you also want to cultivate your, the financial, you want to work on the identity issues and the choice issues. And you also want to cultivate the financial piece, right? So you want to save some money. You want to redefine your relationship with money. I always say to people like there's, you can actually live on less money than you think you can, because you are uh, there's a whole category of expenses that falls away when you leave a job you hate, this whole self-soothing category that just falls away, right? I didn't have to go out to dinner every night and have to go on expensive vacations. I have to buy myself expensive handbags or clothes and spa days. Like there was just a whole category of, of expenses that fell away that I had no idea I was even spending money on. So there's that, but you do, you have to redefine your relationship with money because you know the billable hour method makes you think you are worth a certain amount of money. And so you think if I leave the law, I have to make that much money or I have wasted something or I'm not worth it. Um, So you have to work on all of those pieces. And then you have to have a little bit of money set aside so that you don't have to operate from fear and desperation. I think it's really interesting that you mentioned the self-soothing. I have that, I have two notes here specifically from another, the other podcast that you're on and the one is sabbatical. Cause I was like, I really want to talk to you about sabbatical. Cause I think that that is something that's so interesting. And I was just admire you so much for doing, to, for kind of taking that leap. Right. Um, but kind of a soft leap, like you were, yeah. Um, I admire you for that. I wanted other people to kind of consider that as an option, right? Like if anything, to plant a seed. Um, and then the other note I have here is self-soothing um, because I, I, I kind of forget about that, but I do remember, you know, even at the, when I was, you know, at a, at a bigger firm kind of doing the same thing, right? It's like, oh God, like, you know, I need to call the therapist. <laughs> you yeah. know, or like, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Well, do- not about giving up your therapist when you leave the law, <laughs> but I always say, don't give up your therapist and don't give up your childcare actually when you leave the law, like those, those expenses are important, but but it's true what you say like you just there's this there's this notion of like well I am making this money I'm going to spend it on myself I'm going to spend it on things that and and you you don't need to do that when you're not in a place that you hate or a place where you're miserable you don't necessarily need to um you won't need as much you won't need as much you won't need as much therapy and you won't need any retail therapy Eh, maybe not any but you won't need as much (laughs) You know, it's so funny because I did not realize I I was in a pretty deep self-soothing space mm-hmm. really until I heard you talking about that. And I was like, oh, gosh, like Aww. I think that I was probably doing a lot of that. And I think that I was probably spending a lot of money unnecessarily, yeah. um, you know, and I don't know if it's like a type of like validation as well, like self, but like. I am so unhappy in this career, you know, or like kind of my day to day that, but, but I can go do this thing, like look what I, I can go do. And I'm in control in, in this area. Cause I can Absolutely. Go get a Absolutely. flight to New York tomorrow mm-hmm. or like, you know, that kind of stuff. So yeah. Yeah. It's very Absolutely. It is about regaining control. Absolutely. Because we feel so helpless and we feel so when we're in a, when we feel like we're just heading down a path that is uh, being decided for us instead of us being in the driver's seat. Um, yeah, we just look for other means of control. I mean, that's how, you know, eating disorders and substance abuse and um, other, you know, you know, really traumatic things start happening in, in the law and in other areas where people are feeling those, those same emotions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and where else do we see it more than any place? I mean, big yeah. law, you see it so much. Yeah. So I'm curious what, I want to be mindful of your time. Um, and this has been so, this has been amazing. I've loved getting into your brain. Um, you. what, what's next for you? I need to know uh, what your next projects are. What are you working on? Are you, are you writing today? Yeah. So, so <laughs> my snowy next Pennsylvania day. <laughs> yeah, I know actually snow days are my favorite days to write. So two, two big things are happening this year, um, which feel a little like full circle moments for me. 
One is that um, my second nonfiction book is going to be released. I'm working with a co-author um, on a book called How to Leave the Law. And um, Liz Brown, who is a Harvard Law graduate, but Bentley, she now teaches business law at Bentley undergrad. Um, she uh, wrote a book called Life After Law around the, same, around the time that Lawyer Interrupted, well, right before Lawyer Interrupted came out, because she actually wrote the foreword for Life for lawyer interrupted. And for a long time, there weren't a lot of people in this space talking about like successful transitions. And so we were always kind of running into each other. And, and as the years have gone by, we've talked a lot about writing follow-ups to our respective books. And then we decided to collaborate together. So we're, we're writing a book called How to Leave the Law. It's almost, we're handing it to our editor uh, next month. And it's coming out um, hopefully like later this year. We just have a just had our cover. Actually, it's going to be revealed soon. So I'm excited about that. Yeah. And that feels good. But the other really big full circle moment for me is that my next novel is coming out. It's the first in a series and it's my first true legal drama. And I never wrote legal drama before. I wrote, I have one book that was sort of marketed as a legal thriller, but it has a courtroom scene in the beginning. It really is a psychological suspense novel. And so this is my true first legal drama. It's definitely um, a courtroom uh, drama at the, at the intersection of, it's, it, it, I, I call it the intersection of courtroom drama and psychological suspense. So it's still suspense, which is a, a favorite genre for me, but um, you know, it takes, it's definitely a courtroom book. And it's about a former lawyer who goes back to the law for one case only um, to defend uh, the woman accused of murdering the lawyer's husband. And um, so, yeah, and so there's reasons that she takes on this defense and and she has secrets of her own and it's called In Her Defense. And it's the first of a legal series called the River's Edge Law Club series. Um, the idea is that it's a fictional town. Um, it's, it's, um, it's a town that is supposed to be a, uh, a commuter town to Manhattan. Um, so it's close enough to Manhattan to have all of that fun to it, but it's a small, it's a town that's impersonating a small town. Basically it has a main street and has all the trappings and like visual uh, markers of a small town, but it's not really because it's a commuter town to Manhattan, right? So it's small enough that everybody should know each other's secrets, but they really don't. But at the center of this town is a uh, law club and it's called the River's Edge Law Club. And it's like a country club, except it's not. It's a country club for lawyers, right? And so like other towns have, you know, they're known for their biotech industry or they're known for their, um, their you know, retail flagship, but this town is known for its lawyers. And it's got this, this it. yeah, it's got this law club and that's where all the backdoor deals happen and all the, you know, corruption gets swept under the carpet and the judges um, have lunch, martini lunches there. And the women aren't necessarily always made to feel welcome. And so the series will be, each series will feature a different unlikely heroine sort of uh, exposing corruption and backdoor politics in this town. Um, but it will kind of move back and forth from, it's like kind of like a, like I said, it's a, a fictional town, but it's sort of almost meant to be like a Hudson Valley New York town. Um, and so it, it moves back and forth between River's Edge and Manhattan. And um, I'm really excited about it. So In Her Defense is coming out this May. And, you know, I used to, when I would go to book clubs or when I would go to book parties, people would say to me, why don't you write legal fiction? You were a lawyer for so long. And I used to always say, well, I didn't, you know, I was a corporate litigator, like not the sexy kind of law, right? So, but as time has gone by and I've started to think more about, um, my time in the law and how like the themes that I worked on and how um, and how those years sort of impacted me, it has found its way into my writing. So uh, yeah, so in the same year that my book, How to Leave the Law is being published, I'm also publishing my first legal drama, which is going to be kind of, it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting to see if we follow along. Yeah, I'm excited. So so it's a bit in her defense is available for pre-order right now. It will be out in paperback, audio, and um and ebook uh May 3rd. So yeah. May 3rd. Okay. Amazing. So let me ask you this. Where can people find you in addition to being on Amazon? So if you just go to Amazon, search for Amy and Pelizzeri, um, you can find her, you can follow her author. There's like a little follow next to her next to your name. Um, so where else can people find you? 
So my website, if you go to amyandpalazzari.com, um, you will, and you can sign up for my newsletter and then you'll get alerts for when my books are coming out, when the, the pub date hasn't been announced yet for how to leave the law. But as I said, in her defense, the pub date is May 3rd, but there are also going to be advanced copies of both books available. And if you sign up for the newsletter, then you'll find out how to um, sign up for chances to get advanced copies of those books. So okay. yeah. That's amazing. And I can't wait to see like the TV drama that is made on In Her Defense. Like I can, I can see it now. Okay. So who, like in your book, okay, who would play your main character? Oh gosh. That's so interesting because I actually have a, um, a reviewer, um, uh, a, a favorite book blogger of mine. And she, whenever she reads the books, my book or any book, she always does like a fictional cast. So, yeah, I know. So I'm always um, interested to see how people cast my book. Um, I don't know. The main, so the two characters are Ingrid Delorio is um, the lawyer uh, who is a former lawyer who comes back. And her client is um, Opal Rowan. And I, they're both, they're, they're both very, um, they're both very interesting characters to me, but also very diametrically different and so I don't know I have to think about it a little bit actually that's funny that's the first time I've thought about who would who would play them certainly not me <laughs> <laughs> and these the and this, this series even though it's ironically a legal drama series is probably the least um all of my other books I always say like before this my first five novels set end to end were like my memoir right there I write fiction because I'm not brave enough to write nonfiction, but they were very personal right they were very personal stories they were not autobiographical but they were very personal but this series ironically even though it's legal drama I think is probably the least personal most imaginative um effort of mine so uh I think that's why it'll be it'll be interesting to see how people receive them I think that's amazing. And yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go pre-order your book when we go. Good. Okay. Awesome. Thank so, you. <laughs> um, that's amazing. I'm so excited for you. And I will put a link to your website um, in the show notes. So I'm going to wrap this up, but I want to thank you so much for being here. And I you told me at the beginning of the, of, of our conversation that you get your inspiration from living life. So Go out and play in the snow. Yes, do whatever yes. you got to do for. <laughs> yes, yes, that's what I'll do. And you do the same. Thank you for having me. This is wonderful. I think it's wonderful what you're doing, and I wish you all the best. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today on Legally Bliss Conversations. If you love this episode and you want to hang out with other inspiring and light gold female attorneys. Be sure to join the Legally Bliss community at legallyblissed.com. And be sure to follow me on Instagram at Susie Hickson. See you next time.